Hello and welcome to the first Playback Daily of the week. It's Monday the 2nd of October. I'm Louise Herity and here's just some of what's coming up. I said, listen, the Irish girls don't want to see some nervous wreck walk out there and say, oh, don't mind me, I'm just little me here. You know, they want to see somebody stand out and represent and, and own space and own the moment. There's 25 shows, it's yes. running to December. Yeah. There may be more in the new year, but I'll tell you, if there was a way of getting over there, I would take it with both hands. And uh, the game was restarted, there was no goal. Um, and, and everybody is wondering how uh, this has happened, uh, given that it was a very obvious, it's something really obvious that they should have uh, should have caught. Well, there was fury in Liverpool at the weekend after the club's opening goal in their clash with Spurs was incorrectly ruled offside. That mistake was completely missed by VAR and has since been acknowledged as a significant human error. Football pundit with second captains and the Irish Times' Ken Early joined Claire Byrne to discuss. Morning, Claire. These are very sensitive and important matters, so I think the best thing to do would be for you to explain to us what happened on the pitch, first of all, and then we'll get into the VAR involvement. Well, what happened on the pitch was, um, it's kind of an unprecedented situation, actually. I can't remember remember something quite like it happening before uh, in the VAR era. But essentially, Liverpool scored a goal, it was a good goal, um, was flagged offside by the linesman. Uh, a few seconds later, the VAR officials who should have spotted that it was in fact onside and the goal should be allowed, uh, simply told the referee, check complete. Uh, and uh, the game was restarted, there was no goal. Um, and, and everybody is wondering how uh, this has happened, uh, given that it was very obvious, it's something really obvious that they should have um, should have caught. And afterwards, they said, the VAR team, they felt that they were being asked to confirm that the goal was a goal. So when they said check complete, were they confirming that they felt that this was a, a, a goal? Yeah, this is exactly it. So they, so they um, apparently the only two people in the world watching the game who didn't realise the goal had been immediately ruled out by the on-field linesman. So uh, we had everybody else was seeing the Liverpool player, Luis Diaz, uh, disappointed. The Tottenham fans who thought they'd conceded a goal celebrating. The linesman standing there with his flag up. Uh, and now everybody's thinking the same thing. Now they'll check to see whether it was really offside. Somehow the only two people in the world who had that job failed to notice that, in fact, it was offside and waved, waved through. Yes, correct decision, apparently not realising that the correct decision they were referring to was taken by the referee to mean this is offside. It's really, I mean, it's it, it's an incredible uh, bungle and almost stretches credulity to the extent that you would really like to hear the tape of how this happened so everybody could have a better understanding of of how it occurred. There's more to this story, though, because they were off doing something else, the VAR team, in the hours before this match. Well, this is like the the, um, the extra little element to it. They had been, on Thursday night, refereeing uh, a match in the United Arab Emirates Pro League, um, which had been off, uh, you know, on Thursday night. So they'd flown back on Friday, which obviously led to this then suggestion of, were, were they fatigued? Did they fall asleep at the wheel because they were tired after their flight? But of course, um, the uh, the way that people on Twitter uh, will look at this is, hmm, the United Arab Emirates Pro League, Manchester City, who have won the Premier League five of the last six <laughs> years, uh, are owned by the you know the United Arab Emirates, and here the refs are getting you know wined and dined and paid. 
in a in a little midweek earner in the United Arab Emirates, and and here they are, uh, you know, dispensing terrible wrong decisions against uh, Manchester City's main rival. Now, um, I don't think when you actually sit down and look at all the evidence that you can that you can see evidence of a clear bias or a direction, you know, a sort of a uh, you know results being massaged in a certain way. I don't really think that stands up to scrutiny. We could be here all day talking about, well, you know, there was this decision, there was that decision, and blah 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 blah. But the fact is, how does this look? How are people meant to meant to think about this? I mean, <laughs> you know, we we live in a time when trust in all forms of institutional authority is collapsing. I mean, you can see it in, in every walk of life. I mean, you can see it everywhere. People are seeing chills everywhere. This is corrupt. What's the agenda here? I mean, this is like the, the age of paranoia. And then you've got a situation where the referees in England are allowing their, uh, their highly paid officials to head off on little midweek uh, earners to uh, places where, well, I mean, this, you know, you don't have to be sort of Columbo to wonder if there might be a connection. Um, and certainly that's enough. So what I think, I think what you've got is this massive, um, uh, it's, it's like uh, accusations of conspiracy and corruption going on everywhere. And I'm sitting here wondering, how have we actually ended up in this situation? I mean, it's just, it stuns me. It's incredible. So you, they, they've, you, you say they've, they've opened the door to people coming up with these conspiracy theories in the wake of what was a human error. Well, conspiracy theories are, are literally the main form of social discourse now. Uh, it's not just football, but I think when you when you see things like this, um, it, it just amazes me that like the the um, the perception of integrity is not more important to them. Of course, they can say, well, you know, the two things are totally unrelated. You know, they're simply going off, and you know, they could do what they want in their free time. But I mean, come on, like I mean, let, let's get real here. You know, this is a job where people are naturally suspicious of the of the bona fides of the referee anyway. When you give such easy ammunition to people who are claiming corruption, I don't really see what other outcome you can expect. And I would like to point out that this is this is really kind of a new development uh, in football. And it dates back really to the introduction of VAR, this mass uh, conspiracy theorizing about what's really going on. Because referees have always made mistakes. They used to be accused, though, of being short-sighted. People used to make that glasses uh, gesture with their hands, you know, uh, you know, the chance about the referee being blind and so on. But that's now in the age of VAR because you can't say, well, I didn't see the incident. Of course they can see the incident. You know, they've got multiple video replays, angles of the incident, but they still make mistakes. So how do you explain that? Well, the answer for a lot of people is, well, you know, they've been bought. This is a conspiracy. You know, they're against this club. They're against my club. And really, I feel as though this has been a very, very poisonous, a toxic development for the game. And the solution to it, well, I don't know what the solution to the particular problems of the referee body in England are, but the solution to it in general, the biggest thing that could be done to help it, in my opinion, is to get rid of VAR. It's a Completely bad idea. and utterly gone, you say. Yeah. Well, it creates, it, it creates more problems than it solves. I mean, the problem it was meant to solve was the problem of rage, the problem of people raging at incorrect decisions that have been made by, by referees. But what we've seen is that it doesn't solve that problem. You still get incorrect decisions. You still get flagrantly incorrect decisions like the one that we had uh, on Saturday night. Only now the rage is massively amplified by the fact that it's how can they have made that mistake? You see, previously in real time where it was a one referee on the pitch trying to make sense of this you know, fast-moving chaos all around him, supported by a couple of guys with flags, uh, in real time, gets one look at it. It was a reality that sometimes you're going to miss things or sometimes you're going to see things, misinterpret what you see. That's just the reality of what happens in real time. Now that alibi has been taken away, 
you know, they, they, they thought, okay, we're going to get more decisions right this way. It'll make things fairer. People will be calmer because they can see it's more fair. But actually what you see, you get people coming out and saying things like, well, we've reduced the number of wrong decisions, you know, from uh, 80, from 12% to, you know, uh, 6%. Uh, you know, and, and presenting this as though it's good, overlooking the fact that the 6% of wrong decisions now are massively more controversial and toxic mm-hmm. than the 12% were, were before. So the, so the net result is a massive uh, negative. Yeah, but you'll have, people listening to this will go, well, that's an overreaction to a mistake made by some bleary-eyed officials who've just gotten off a plane after doing a nixer. Yeah, well, uh, I mean, first of all, the, the, is is it too much to ask that they not be bleary-eyed? I mean, if that yeah, but is it, the but thing... it, but address that problem as opposed to getting rid of VAR. Well, uh, I mean, the the problem is that you can't you constantly get these mistakes with VAR, even with bright-eyed, bushy-tailed officials who haven't been off earning in the Gulf uh, in, in midweek. I mean, you've see you, we've seen them every week in the Premier League. So the mistakes are not eliminated, but the mistakes that do happen are far are amplified far more and become far more toxic than they previously were. I mean, I was writing about this in in a self-indulgent way today in the Irish Times because I realized that this subject has turned me into a crank. Right. Uh, you know, I never I never used to talk about uh, referees because why would you? I mean, it's just they make mistakes as part of the game. But now it's 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 like it seems every week there's this there's another ridiculous thing that's happened by this misguided idea. I'm sure that it was a well-meaning idea that this is going to sort things out. It's not. It's making things worse and there's no need for it and I don't see why it can't be gotten rid of. I mean, we don't we don't have it in, in the League of Ireland. You know, the League of Ireland gets by okay. I know people complain about refereeing decisions in the League of Ireland, but they should see that it's, it's happening in leagues where they do have our... They don't have it in Sweden, you know, they've because they've said, look, we think this is just a bad idea. You've, the solutions that I see are always, well, rewrite the rules again or appoint extra you know officials to make sure the existing officials are like awake or you know let's get ex-players involved and you're like no just simplify the system simplify it actually get less refereeing involvement they're going to make mistakes so why introducing more referees just introduces more mistakes and it's got to go the other direction i think and listen tell me what happens then in the aftermath of this for liverpool what recourse do they have well, they don't really have any any um, recourse. Uh, I mean, you know, I see people that they, they have put out a statement for their they're saying this has affected sporting integrity, which is fairly strong language in this context because you know they're uh, you know they're looking for a kind of an inquiry into it. You know, how did this happen? You know, are referees really going to be allowed to go and, and do little earners? You know, if if referees feel like they're not making enough money, maybe they should go and and work in the Gulf permanently. You know, that maybe that should be their number one job, but maybe. You know, they, they, they should regard if you in the Premier League, this is this is going to be your main job. You know, these are, I suppose, the sorts of things that they'll be looking at. Uh, but in terms of recourse, like a procedure for what to what what happens in a case like this, I mean, there isn't any. I mean, yeah, they're not getting their goal back, Ken. Oh no, no, no. I mean, a refereeing mistake is not is no grounds to have a, a match replayed. I mean, refereeing mistakes have happened since football was invented. It's, it's a normal part of the game. I mean, ma- matches have been replayed. I can think, for, for example, of Arsene Wenger offering to replay a match against Sheffield United in the FA Cup a few years back because uh, Arsenal had scored a goal in an unsporting way. You know, they should have thrown the ball back and instead they went and scored. And Wenger afterwards said, OK, let's replay the match because we shouldn't have done that. But the point was that that was something Arsenal had done, which he felt was wrong. Uh, whereas a referee's mistake, I've never seen him apologise for, for benefiting from one of those. I mean, that's just 
That's just normal. So there's no question of replays or anything like that. But given that the system has produced so many errors and the atmosphere around the game is so bad now, it's so it's so like it's literally corruption conspiracy is all all you hear. Football pundit Ken Early on today with Claire Byrne. She was the first female conductor of the Oscars and Irish conductor and composer Emer Noon spoke to Kira King on the nine o'clock show this morning. And the first thing Kira asked was about those pre-Oscar nerves. <laughs> um, it's so funny. I've been asked that so many times yeah. and especially before the ceremony. So when you keep getting asked before the ceremony, you're going to be nervous. You're going to be nervous. <laughs> kind of makes thinking, you more nervous. Well, you kind of start thinking, is there something I should be nervous about? And the thing was, uh, for me, uh, this is, you know, one of those um, discovered overnight after 20 years uh, yeah. in the saddle kind of moments. So I actually wasn't because I had just, I've been doing this my whole life and um, I'd just come off a very, very technically difficult production with a hologram of Maria Callas. And so it was technically a lot you know easier with lots of rehearsal i knew the orchestra members really well i just knew they were so so had it together you know um so i wasn't and i really mm. wanted to stand up as an irish woman i said listen the irish girls don't want to see some nervous wreck walk out there and say oh don't mind me i'm just little me here you know they want to see somebody stand out and represent and and own the space and own the moment so I was kind of focusing on what I would have wanted to see as a young classical musician when I was a student. Okay, and well, that was, what, um, yeah, that was a, a really great way to kind of think about it, uh, you know, because it's such a huge stage. And I and I felt like, you know, there were so many eyes on you, as you said. And then you were introduced by Gail Godot, Sigourney Weaver and Brie Larson, three incredible women in their own right. Did you know that? Oh, they are stunning. They're incredible. But I'll tell you, I didn't realize that they were going to be there until they were speaking on stage. <laughs> so I got a bit of a fright, you know, I got a bit of a shock. I mean, it's a brilliant shock, but um, in rehearsals, they have other actors fill in. Okay. And, you know, you're so worried about your own thing that you have to do. And I'm listening to my audio cues and I'm looking at my monitor and I'm getting ready to go. And the next thing I see these three goddesses on the stage in front of me because we're in the pit, we're just below the stage, but I can see everything that's on stage and I have my screens in front of me at the same time. I just nearly fell off the podium, literally, yeah, when I saw yeah. the feeling. But uh, it was a great surprise. Yeah, it was incredible. And then the camera pans to you and you just like, you just got into the music straight away. Like, you know, because I was obviously rooting for you, you know, when I was watching you and you just, you look so professional and straight away, it just became about the music. And as you said, that's why you were there. That's what you were there to do, to perform. But can I ask you, is, did you, could you enjoy the Oscars or was just getting the job or the task at hand done? You know, did you meet any of the actors? Did you see anyone receiving any of their awards? I did. Look, it, it was one of those things where you go, this I have to remember. Do you ever have an experience where you're like, I wish my brain were a camera, was recording every bit of this? Yeah. That's how I felt. Like we, you know, we, we, we had a moment where Lin-Manuel Miranda took a selfie of us together. And, you know, um, I met her on Saoirse was there, Saoirse Ronan. Mm -hmm. 
And um, but Brie Larson was an absolute dote. She's like you'd just want to go and hang out and have a glass of wine with her or a coffee and and just she's just like every other you know fantastic girl that you want to be friends with you know. Yeah. Um, but you know, for me, really, it was performing the music of my heroes. I mean, John Williams was there performing John Williams' music for him in the room. Uh, Thomas Newman for him. He's sitting there in the room. Randy Newman. And it just, it, uh, Diane Warren was there, one of my all-time heroes, and um, watching the likes of um, uh, the the amazing Janelle Monet get up and just tear up the stage. It was, I watched her and I went, okay, in rehearsals, this girl is incredible. The Irish girls need the same <laughs> level. I can't let the side down. Well, you certainly this didn't. Incredible girl. He certainly didn't. So, and I, um, you know, I was watching the audience afterwards and Janelle Monet, she jumped up, you know, she was one of the first people to jump up to give you a standing ovation. Oh, she was cool. We we all met together rehearsing or recording in Capitol Records beforehand. And her team, I have honestly never seen a music team actually bopping out in the control room while people are recording, people are playing. They were dancing around the place. Her producer was bopping all over the room. The rest of us were joining in. It was just a total party atmosphere. It was fantastic. No, it was, it was amazing. pure joy, the mm-hmm. whole thing. Now, obviously, many people know your work without even knowing it. So you've composed very popular video games. In fact, um, you've been described as the Irish queen of game music. How do you feel oh about that God. title? <laughs> I don't know where that title came from. There's some some lovely journalist out there, I think, came up with that. But um, you know, it's I've been very fortunate. My my background is just like the kids in the Frank Maher Award is completely classical with a bit of East Galway trad thrown in. And um I just followed that passion and I followed my love of the orchestra into what I felt was very emotional, descriptive music. And I don't come from a professional music family with lots of musical talent in the previous generations. Um, but I, w- I want to be in an area of music where my aunts and uncles and, and my cousins and my neighbours and friends, that everybody can feel welcome and everybody can come mm-hmm. and everybody can feel the musical emotion without having to be, you know, educated or without feeling it's elitist or... Yeah. or you know, so that's that's kind of the, the area that I've chosen for right now, which is... Um, but it's funny uh, because you, when you think of video game music, like I just think about the video games that I used to play when I was younger, like Super Mario Brothers or like I can hear Tetris in my head. But you're composing like gorgeous orchestral arias for, for video games. Well, yeah, I mean, it's it's just like the history of music through the centuries is composers have always collaborated with other media and of course, today we have film, we have television, we have virtual reality, we have video games. So it's really, really fun for a composer mm. to collaborate with great storytellers, and especially storytellers that bring an interactive and, and an unknown into the factor as mm-hmm. well, into the creative arena. Um, so that's yeah, really fun for me. It's definitely, video game music, it's definitely emerging as a particular genre. I have friends now that will go to a concert of, um, you know, music from video games. We actually have a little clip here of, I think we have a clip of the, the Zelda, I think, just to give people a little...
unbelievable. I think I read somewhere, and I loved this, you said that if Mozart were alive today, that he would probably be compo- composing video game scores. Well, Mozart loved a musical puzzle, and a lot of composing for games uh, is a musical puzzle. You have to write the music in a way that it works when a player selects a certain thing or, or, or takes a certain action. And it has to work musically as well. And also Mozart loved, uh, he, he wrote a serious opera and he wrote opera buffa for the general public. He loved having, you know, a big audience of everybody to mm-hmm. come and hear his music. So I think he would have really loved this area, especially the puzzle part. Um, but that's why, and, and we do these huge concerts. Um, we did a, uh, we, we do one every year at the Royal Albert Hall and it sells out months in advance. And I get to bring some of my favorite young Irish artists with me to that. We, we generally do it with the Royal Philharmonic. Um, the last two years I had Ashling McGlynn, who was absolutely fantastic. And some of these Irish artists have performed for hundreds of millions of people through video game scores. Uh, working with Japanese composers, working with American composers, working with Irish composers. But it's a huge audience. It's a and massive it's an audience, audience that yeah. loves the orchestra. Yeah, it's, mm. it's really, yeah. I remember being fascinated um, when I was learning about the computer game Fortnite and that you could actually go to virtual concerts of bands while playing the game. And that kind of just like blew my mind. Um, but I also then I realised like this is huge. Like this uh, this industry is absolutely massive. Now, I believe you're working on a top secret AAA game at the minute. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Absolutely not. No, yeah, I thinking. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that's that world. It's like, you know, it's 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 fun that it's so secretive, but also there's definitely a reason. I mean, when we're recording, we can't even have any titles that have anything to do with the game on the sheet music. Wow. That's how serious the fans are. And okay. they're fantastic. Yeah, that's, do you know what? We're going to stop talking about this because I'm so, I actually obviously want to ask <laughs> you more questions about it, but I don't want to get you in any trouble. Best of luck with that anyway. Now, I was listening to a podcast um, of yours during the week and I was really sad to hear this kind of one particular thing. And it was when you decided to tell a conductor at a young age that what your dream was, um, the conductor kind of laughed in your face. Can you tell me um, about the conductor who said that you'd never make it? Well, you know, you're a young artist and I've I've since had the chance, I haven't taught in a, in a while, but I've taught at third level uh, in the States and to see young artists come in and young artists are so sensitive and, and so self-deprecating and, you know, to anything negative really goes to the heart. But for me, I couldn't understand. I was looking around and I was looking at, you know, on TV and I was looking at people doing this and I couldn't understand why a girl wouldn't do it. I mean, I'm not trying to th- lift giant boulders. Or, and, mm-hmm. and if that was my passion, I'd figure out how to do it. <laughs> yeah. But um, <laughs> I, I couldn't believe, you know, it was later years as an educator, I thought, how could anybody say something to a young anything? Because you don't know what's inside another person, what they're capable of. And we barely know ourselves. We have this still small voice that goes, you know what, I'm, I can do it, I can do it. And we need to listen to that voice. But it's, it's a quiet little voice. Mm-hmm. And other people can't hear it. So, and people develop at different ages and different rates. But, but expression and creativity, nobody has a right to tell someone that they can or cannot express their own unique voice. So I learned a lot from that experience and I learned a lot 
as now a professional musician, seeing uh, young artists coming up and, you know, how they should be um, nurtured and, and, and how they should be trusted as well with their own self-belief. So um, it was a, a learning experience, but also taught me a lot about myself, which was, you know, I think um, I think Irish women are pretty tenacious. I think we have that, that thing our mothers instilled in us and our fathers, which is, you know, somebody's got to do it. If somebody else can do it, you can do it. Why not? And uh, I always say... Um, I thank the Irish taxpayers because I got a first-rate education for mm-hmm. free in this country and it's taken me all over the world and I never, ever forget that. And but, why, um, why did you want to be a conductor? What was it about, you know, something well, that you saw that you went, that's what I want to do? Yeah, I was about seven years of age and I saw a conductor on TV and I saw the passion that the players were playing with. I saw the fire and the brimstone. I saw the blood, sweat and tears. I just went, okay, that'll do. I'll do that. And it was some sort of, it just struck a mad chord for, you know, uh, want a better expression. But I just, I wanted to be in the middle of it. Mm -hmm. What is happening here? Why is this making me feel goosebumps on my arms? What is this magic, this alchemy? What is happening? I need to find out. And I need to be in the middle of it with these magical people that are doing this. And that was what drove me was I just need to be in the middle of it. And I need to know more about it and more about it. And the thing about music is you cannot learn everything there is to know in a lifetime. And that I love. So it's a constant, constant uh, search for truth and and, uh, a constant expression of the development of, of a person over their mm-hmm. lifetime as well. So it, it's you, a moving target always. Irish composer and conductor Emer Noon chatting to Kira King on the nine o'clock show. There's been a lot of talk about the harmful effects of vaping, particularly on young people. And this was up for discussion on Morning Ireland today. Disposable vapes need to be banned. That is the unanimous message from a group of paediatricians at the Royal College of Physicians of Ireland who say that vaping is harmful and has significant long-term health risks for children and young people whose brains and bodies are still developing. The respiratory medicine experts say that the use of vapes among young adults and teenagers is increasing at an alarming rate and evidence shows that those who vape are very likely to move on to smoking traditional cigarettes. One of those experts is with us in studio. We'll speak to him in a moment. First, Louise Ronan is principal of Colostia Bridge, an all-girls secondary school in Clondalkin in Dublin, with almost 1,000 students. And like many other head teachers across the country, she has noticed more and more of her students vaping. What we've definitely observed is that there's been a huge increase in vaping amongst our female teenagers in school. Um, This has become quite significant, I suppose, post-COVID. And so what it looks like for us on the ground is that uh, we had noticed that a number of toilet cubicles were not available to use at break time and lunchtime. And that became a concern for us because we want, obviously, all of our students to be able to access bathrooms. So it's quite different to, I suppose, a cigarette in the sense that if the smell is different, it's harder to identify. It becomes difficult to manage in a school. So it is just another very high priority for us to try and manage along with all the other things in school. Um, My concern is certainly that maybe parents don't understand the sheer danger of and how addictive uh, these vapes are. And I would also question whether or not the students understand that too. 
so while we will try and raise awareness around all of that and that's a priority for us again this year i'm not sure that it's filtering down to family households um and maybe they they aren't so aware um i know for us when we bring the awareness to the parents attention they're quite shocked at the level of addiction that actually can occur in in, in kids as young as 13 14 years of age well, Professor Des Cox is a consultant in paediatric respiratory medicine and he represents the Faculty of Paediatrics at the Royal College of Physicians in Ireland. He's with us now. Good morning. What is in vapes that make them so harmful to young people's health and well-being? Yeah, um, so the first thing to say is that what we're talking about this morning is a ban on disposal of vapes and they're the single-use vapes um, that are made up of a plastic, a lithium battery and e-liquid. So the concern <coughs> among paediatricians is the e-liquid. Um, so when you inhale, uh, what's in the e-liquid is, is mainly nicotine, but there's also uh, flavourings and, and other products uh, that are not um, uh, good for uh, uh, growing lungs. Um, and also nicotine we we know now that you know for the developing brain has some negative impacts as well so really children and adolescents uh, and actually young adults up until the age of 25 their brains and their lungs are, are still developing so we're significantly concerned that by um, children and, 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 and adolescents vaping frequently they're they're doing themselves damage in the Well what run. damage is being done? Yeah so um, as I mentioned the brain is still developing so uh, like chronic exposure to nicotine uh, in the developing brain can have some cognitive uh, defects. Also causes uh, addiction and as your uh, previous speaker just mentioned there, there's a a significant issue uh, with uh, we now have a new generation of uh, children and adolescents addicted to vapes which is a whole new problem that we haven't really thought of before. And then the second issue is that if you um, expose the lungs and the heart to uh, vapes um, at a young age, it's very likely you will develop health problems, so cardiovascular and lung problems down the track. Now obviously <clears throat> we're only 10 years into this so mm. we're probably not going to see the effects for a number of years to come. But even uh, the, the experimental research that we would see now does indicate that people who chronically vape are at risk of developing these problems. Again, we're, we're not saying that vapes are uh, more harmful than cigarette, than tobacco. Uh, they are less harmful, but uh, there's a perception out there, that, especially with teenagers, that they're not harmful. That they're that they're just you know a bit of flavour and a, a bit of colour, and and we're trying to get that perception, uh, uh, like uh, you know, to try and get rid of that perception that they're harmless. Um, you know, these should be you, you know if you're going to no children are not smokers should be using these devices at all and unfortunately the balance has gone the wrong way now so instead of having ex-smokers um, using these devices to get off tobacco what we're seeing now is what the principal in that school is seeing is mm-hmm. that we're seeing children and adolescents and, and young adults um, using these frequently as a recreational and I think anecdotally certainly um, it would be hard pressed to find any school principal who would say it's not an issue in their secondary school at the moment you treat young children um, but you your colleagues treat older children and we know that the World Health Organization has said that vaping can lead to cardiovascular disease and increased incidence of it. Your colleagues who treat older children, what are they telling you about what they're seeing in their patients? So um, certainly um, the evidence shows that uh, 
you know, if you have uh, chronic uh, lung conditions like asthma, it can certainly trigger asthma attacks or it can bring about, um, you know, asthma attacks. Um, it can cause, you know, symptoms like bronchitis-like symptoms, like so we're talking about cough, irritation of the airways. You know, I'm, I'm sure, um, you know, parents of teenagers who, who do vape ha- have seen this as well. So it, it does cause irritation to the lungs. And But our concern is what's that doing to the lungs in the long term? And that's that's a that's a big problem, um. You know we're 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 concerned because uh, we're now the, the disposal of vapes is now the product of choice for teenagers. So <clears throat> we would have seen in the data from the UK, which was published last year, is that they they've now the market share for disposal of vapes is now is now gone. Not, there was a ninefold increase. When what teenagers are using, so these the teenagers are using these disposal. They they can buy them in the over the counter in a in a petrol station for five or six euros. Well, this is where we come to the legislation, and there is legislation going through the doll at the moment. It's in the third stage on banning vapes to under 18s but we're told that it doesn't cover disposable vapes, and you want them banned outright, do you? Yes, uh, and the health minister has indicated that he is intending on bringing in a ban on disposal of vapes. We really would encourage him to do this quickly because this is a rising, you know, the, the, the alarming rates. Um, so what we're saying is that uh, so disposal of vapes um, are the single use and they have an environmental um, a risk as well. So they're very difficult to recycle. And the lithium battery in these uh, devices, the UK published some data saying that uh, the, the amount of uh, lithium batteries that were wasted through disposal of vapes last year was the equivalent of the uh, lithium batteries that we'd find in 1,200 uh, electric cars. So, I mean, this is incredible waste. But do you want the ban introduced immediately, do you? Because we're told that a public consultation on disposable vapes began at the start of June. It was meant yeah. to take two months. We haven't heard anything back on that yet. But you wanted to introduce... Yeah, so, so I mean, so that, that legislation, the Public Health Bill, um, they've really dragged their heels with this. Um, I mean, we've been speaking about this bill. I mean, I spoke on this radio station before about it a number of years ago. So we really need to push on with this. But as I mentioned, it's not going to be enough. There was recent data from uh, Northern Ireland that was just published where it showed that uh, 85% of teenagers who use e-cigarettes use disposable vapes. It's a massive number. It's really concerning. And in that country, as in the UK, in Northern Ireland, vapes are banned in under 18s. So you can't buy, you're not supposed to be able to buy. So there are, so kids are accessing these products. And so we need more than just an age limitation. We need a ban of disposable vapes. We need, need restrictions on flavouring and also restrictions on advertising and marketing because the problem is, is that they're marketing these products to children and adolescents. Professor Des Cox, consultant in paediatric respiratory medicine on Morning Ireland. With the budget just over a week away on October 10th, Elaine Lachlan, political editor with the Irish Examiner, spoke to Claire Byrne about what we might expect. So it's next Tuesday, that's uh, Budget Day. We know the negotiations are still ongoing, quite intense as we understand reading the papers at the weekend. And the Minister for Finance, Michael McGrath, is looking at this USC cut, that's what we're told. And there's work being done on how that will pan out. So what do we know? Yes, well, we do know that, the, the as you said, the Minister is looking at this widening of 
perhaps the 2% ban for USC, which would obviously help uh, the lower to middle income earners. Um, also, on the other side of it, we are looking, and I think Fine Gael, it's something that they've been pushing, the entry point to the higher rate of income tax and increase there. Now, it's about balancing both out against each other and deciding how much wiggle room is available for both measures. Um, we are under the understanding, though, that that um, higher rate of tax, it's now at 40,000, it won't go as high as 45,000, so it'll be somewhere in between um, because raising it by around 5,000 is deemed too expensive a measure given the amount of, of money um, available to Minister McGrath mm-hmm. at this point in time. But I see in your own paper today your colleague Kira Phelan is talking about maybe giving with one hand and taking away with the other because we look, could be looking at a PSRI rise in January. Yes, and the government has already made it clear that they won't be raising the pension age. Uh, It'll remain at 66, but there's a knock-on impact on that. And to do that, to keep uh, the pension age at 66, it will mean gradually increases in PRSI in the coming years. Now, uh, ministers, Minister McGrath, Minister Pascal Donoghue are due to meet the three coalition leaders on Wednesday where this issue, quite a political, quite a contentious issue, will be raised um, and whether or not we will see the first increase in PRSI perhaps from January of this year. That will be up for discussion in the context of the budget. So if that happens, Claire, as you said, you'll have um, perhaps more pe- or people getting more money with the higher rate of uh, or entering uh, the higher rate at a higher level and the USC measures, but then having uh, earnings taken off them due to increases in PRSI. But that's something that we know has been well flagged. Minister Heather Humphreys is working on this roadmap, a PRSI roadmap um, that will dictate the level of increases over the coming years to pay essentially for what is an ageing population and what many people call now the, the pensions uh, ticking time bomb because we do know that the state will have to pay out considerably more mm-hmm. in pensions in the years and decades ahead. And what they're talking about, according to what Keir is reporting today, is both employers and employee PRSI and that would be probably unpalatable for government at that time in the political cycle because they'd be heading into the locals and the Europeans. Election. Yes, and I think... Any any increase in taxes is never going to go down well with people with workers. Um, but certainly, if they do decide to move on this from January of next year, it will come into uh, force just months ahead of those local and European elections, um, which I think the government parties already know will be challenging, um, given the, their standing in the poll and, and given the standing of the main rival Sinn Féin in the polls now as well. Um, so it definitely would be a very contentious uh, measure, but a measure that I think a lot of ministers now acknowledge is one that is required, whether it's from January uh, of next year or the following year, it is coming down the tracks and and a decision will have to be made on it. All right, but let's come back to the budget uh, next week and social welfare increases. What are we expecting there? Yes, and this has been flagged. Obviously, we had significant social welfare increases last year as part of the budget. Like all areas, we're perhaps not expecting the same level this year, although uh, Minister Heather Humphreys is pushing for a significant increase in social welfare payments 
we're expecting 10 euro, perhaps more if she can get it, uh, perhaps up to the 12 euro. At one stage over the summer, 15 euro was floated, but it's unlikely given the constraints that we're now under um, that that will go ahead. But certainly I think people on social welfare benefits and social welfare payments can expect around 10 euro of an increase, if not more. Mm -hmm. Now we saw the energy companies, seven of them, reducing their prices or making a commitment to reduce them in November, which played well for the government, if you like, because uh, they may not have had to make the same commitment on energy credits that they would have needed or that they had to do last year. But they are going to do something on the energy credit front. They certainly are. And I think the coalition are conscious of the fact that we are coming into the cold time of the year dark nights that people perhaps are filling up their oil tanks at the moment or starting to put on heating um, and there will be more of a demand on on energy in households and of course businesses. So I think you will see a repeat of energy credits but perhaps in a different format. I think two of the options being looked at now is the possibility of three energy credits of between 100 and 150 euros, so less than last year, or maybe two at 200 a go. Um, and I think the coalition as well will be looking to front load those who will see them, or certainly the majority of uh, credits given to households and families this side of Christmas as opposed to into next year. They want to keep it in this year's budget or this year's allocation. Um, and so we're likely to see those credits come before the Christmas, which will be welcome to many households. But again, not as generous as last year's uh, package that was announced on Budget Day. There's a, a risk there for government, isn't there, with the one-off measures, Elaine, that if you repeat them, you risk them being seen not as once-off measures and that they become expected every year. Yes, and we've seen that year after year with the Christmas bonus. Um, it is signed off on every year at budget time, but people now expect it. Um, and it is it is very much anticipated by a lot of households who probably wouldn't get through Christmas without it. But certainly if you go into uh, multiple energy credits this winter, uh, will people be again expecting them come the springtime like uh, happened last spring? Um, and it's very difficult to roll back on measures once they become, uh, you know, semi-expected, uh, shall we say. But I think the government will certainly be um, pointing to the fact that these are unique times where energy is still very expensive and the cost of both heating and lighting uh, a home is significantly more than it was a few years ago and that these are, um, you know, emergency measures, shall mm. we say, that, that won't be repeated in the years to follow. Okay, Not unrelated, price of uh, petrol and diesel, we were talking about this on the programme on Friday where the fear is that they could hit €2 Euro a litre at the pumps. Now, the government is expected to, or was expected rather, to increase excise duty as part of a restoration plan. Is that on the back burner now? Is that not going to happen? That seems to be very much on the back burner now, Claire, that that, that final uh, bump in the levies uh, won't happen, certainly this side of the, the budget. And I think the government will wait to see how uh, fuel prices, both petrol and diesel, go in the coming months t- um, to make a decision on when that that restoration, that final restoration um, of excise will happen. But I think uh, motorists can rest assured that that won't be happening now as anticipated.
All right, a lot of um, budget spending, it seems, depends on how large the overrun is in the Department of Health. There's controversy over exactly what that figure is, Elaine, isn't there? There certainly is. And this uh, this was first mooted about a week and a half ago now where we were told that the Department of Health, and it has to be said, the Department of Health and the HSE, we now kind of come to expect budget overruns in the HSE and the health service, but it's a really eye-watering sum this year. We were told it was around the one billion mark um, last week then at the health committee. Politicians were told that that possibly was up at 1.1, 1.2 billion. And I know there were reports over the weekend that perhaps that overspend could could be closer to two billion by the end of the year, which is really significant. And I think other ministers are very aware that the level of overspending now in the HSE could impact their spending and the allocations going into next year for other departments. So you could see tensions rise amongst ministers who thought they might get more in the budget and now will have to reassess um, and maybe re-look or re-examine their priorities um, because they may not be getting as much as they had anticipated. And it also has to be said that in the Department of Children as well, we were notified last week of a one billion overspend. So the Department of Health is not the only uh, department um, that is in trouble when it comes to overspending, but certainly um, the HSE will be told to keep a tight rein now on spending. And I think Minister Donnelly uh, Minister Stephen Donnelly, the health minister, will be trying to put pressure on the HSE to cut costs, especially around that area of agency staff, um, overtime and the extra spending around that because there are other elements. We look at inflation, it's impacting every sector of society and the health sector is, is among that. That cannot be controlled. That's out of the control of the HSE. But but other elements, I think the minister will be under pressure uh, to cut costs to make sure that we don't get as, as high as that two billion. Elaine Lachlan, political editor with the Irish Examiner on Today with Claire Byrne. It seemed like every Irish muso was in Las Vegas for the opening weekend of U2's shows at The Sphere and Tom Dunn joined Ray Darcy to tell us all about it. Uh, Tom Dunn in Las Vegas, U2's gig at Sphere is truly magnificent. You see, I think yeah. people have run out of words to describe this and I'm even th- th- yeah. there's new words been invented like exoscreen. What's an exoscreen? I've never heard that term before. Well, that's kind of the, it's a way to describe it because the screen that you're watching is wrapped around you and it's the skeleton. It's the it's the roof of the sphere. Right. So it is like a kind of an exoscreen. And when, when, like, when you're flying in, you look out the window, you can actually see the sphere as, as you're landing in Vegas. It's like this big, huge blue planet that's after crashing into Earth. And when you're driving around, the buzz is just electric. People are coming from all over the world to see this. I met a guy in, in the lift and he said, I don't like you two. But uh, I've met people today from Australia, New Delhi, and he started listing out the countries of the world, you know. Yeah. And I was thinking, maybe you're, maybe you're the one who's missing something here, my friend. Um, so it was going in, it was like everybody was made up. Some people were dressed as Mephisto, a lot of people were dressed up for it. It, it just seemed like... God, all the cool people in the world kind of were all congregating in one place. And it, it's very visually striking. When you walk into it, it, it becomes a bit more traditional. It, it's it's like, you know, the back of any big stadium or anything like that. It's it's very cool. It's very new. It's very state of the art. But it's all really when you walk into the theatre part of it. You walk through the wall, the kind of curtained wall, and then you're inside it. And then 
it's just a performance space of, of the highest caliber. The stage is just like a, an upturned shoebox, really, mm. but there's nothing around it. It's just there. So there's no there's no side stage. There's no you know backstage. It's just this box, uh, you know, in front of the wall that the band walk onto with a drum kit on it and microphone stands. No amps or anything like that. So despite and the then, fact that it's the highest tech venue in the world, there is no tech on show. But isn't this, yeah, but isn't this thing though, that it all comes down to performance and what's going on, on the stage, that, that everything around it is there to make that look great. But that, it really, it's like a boxing ring, really. It's the two people getting into the ring that it's really all about. And that's what, when you see the four of them walking on stage, that's when you start thinking, right, let's see what you can do. What's going to happen next? And, you know, it's you two. So they're just walking on stage, kind of get you excited. They're one of the greatest bands in the world and they're ours. And um, then the, the stuff around you starts to kick off. And there's one song, about three songs in, even better than the real thing is when it just goes to a parallel universe. It, that's when you really realise that these aren't walls. This is the ecto screen thing that that person said. It's everywhere you look. And it's like this explosion of colour. And it seems to descend down upon you and wrap around you. I mean, you're looking up at it, you think it's like the Sistine Chapel, but it's, and it's incredibly vivid colours and every bit is moving in it. You can't take your eyes off it. And you realise it you know, when someone explains to you that it's a montage of every film that Elvis Presley was ever in. Because Elvis Presley is a huge part of this. He was the first big um, residency in Vegas to kind of put Vegas on the map. So you kind of feel like you're in the, you're in the kind of church of Elvis, really. Right. And and that is that's the beginning of the mind blowing experiences that start. While that's happening, little videos of Bono and Edge performing are, are floating off in little bubbles and just bubbling up through this as they're performing. You know, it's still them live that you're watching. So it's just such a spectacle and it goes on from there. and the performance bits are amazing. And when they're doing something like one Bono is giving it socks. He's singing that fantastic song. The Edge suddenly appears on the huge screen behind him, over his shoulder, playing sensational guitar riffs. Every bit of chemistry is captured. It's it's really beautiful. And the new drummer, which, you know, there's a moment where you go, oh my God, Larry, you know, which is a lot to take on board. The new guy is good. He's a bit tall, which I think is is obviously not ideal. Um you know, a certain minimum uh, average height, I think, is the best for pounds. That's just my own personal <laughs> feeling. Um, so, so. Do, do you know what? I've, I've read all the reviews, right? And I've, I've looked at the yeah. pictures. Uh, but but yeah. you were there and you got the walk around beforehand. You yeah. he spoke to your man, yeah. William Williamson, who's, who's, who's over the whole yeah. thing. Uh, w- w- yeah. Was there any part of it where you were overwhelmed? You know, because as you say, <sighs> it's about you too, but then all these other things yeah. are going around and you're looking here, there and everywhere and you don't know where to look. Um, yeah. Were you overwhelmed? at all? I was only really overwhelmed by emotion, to right. tell the absolute okay. truth. Um, yeah, particularly during one. One was the one that got us. I was there with Pat Carty and Roshi Ningle and we were hugging each other during that. We were gone. We were gone at that stage. It was just too much for us. Um, <laughs> was we it pride? Just... Was it pride? No, no, it was one, I know, but was it pride? Was one... it Irish pride? Yeah. <laughs> it was a bit of, the, I, I, somebody said something that we all have a U2 story and, and I think that's the truth. Everyone has this moment that U2 meant something to them in their lives and I, I think we were all remembering our individual <laughs> U2 moments at that point. I kind of just think that we've been there with that band for 40 years now. They've been there with us and there's a strong emotional connection with yeah. them and seeing them at the top of their game 
Um, yeah, yeah, it's pride. It's, it's huge pride. And, and who, uh, who were who were the stars band. in the audience apart from yourself, obviously? Uh, <laughs> well, I heard the previous night was pretty much a who's who. Um, Levon James, Jason Bateman, Matt Damon, Maria Sharapova, Lars Ulrich, Katy Perry, Paul McCartney, right. uh, Sting. You know, everybody who was Paul, uh, Michael Stipe. Everybody, everybody who was anyone wants to be there, and everyone who was in a band would be coming away thinking. That's a different standard of show to what we're used to. And it's a show that could only be put off in in the sphere because it really, the sense of reality is lost. It's like a big, huge VR set. At one point, it's like the walls disappear and Vegas, as it really is, appears behind them. Okay, so it's just yeah. like, and you, you've just driven through this area. Okay. So you know that is exactly the area that, that, that is behind them. And then cranes appear in it and the thing is dismantled and returns back to the desert from which it came. This is a lot to take in. And, and what about the sound? Was, what about the sound? Sound is absolutely superb. Like superb. Hi- hi-fi level or? Yeah, it, uh, Joe O'Hurley, their sound man from Cork, who was celebrating the 45th anniversary on the 28th of September, the first time he did sound for them in the Arcadia in Cork. Wow. They went down. He was the local sound man. That was the beginning of an adventure that would change his life and theirs. And he was telling me that the ins and outs is basically a, a real stereo system or a sound system around them. And then it's almost like a surround sound system for the audience. So it's coming from the stage is the is the way you'd see at any normal venue, yeah. but then it's enhanced to the nth degree. And every speaker does have a haptic speaker in it. What does that mean? That's it's a vibration. So you're not really hearing the music, you're feeling it. Okay. If you are a drummer in a top line band, I will be. you often have a haptic <laughs> drum seat <laughs> and you will have your own special haptic drum right. seat that you hear the bass drum beat in, right. in, your, in your bum, basically. I was, we were talking on Friday um, about you know Bono and being nervous and yeah. people were going, oh, you won't be nervous. Uh, but, but a lot of people writing about it said that he was, he appeared to be nervous. That was the review the first night. I yeah. didn't see any of that on the oh, second night. Oh, you were in the night. second night he'd settled um, into it completely. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Yeah, and I heard that he went straight to bed after the first gig. Right. Uh, Good to hear. <laughs> just, and I saw on you two groups that he was drinking uh, tea with honey in it and he was really concerned about his voice. Um, I think he was thinking, I, I can't not be there. There were half an hour late going on for our gig, which um, was interesting because there was a little bit of apprehension thinking, is this definitely going to happen? Mm. Uh but there's no, a there's a lot of moving amazing. parts though. So many things can go wrong, can't they? I know this that's the that's thing. that's the pessimist in me, but, <laughs> but yeah, no, yeah. but you're completely right. But yeah. that was I was looking at that and I was thinking, um, Willie Williams that we talked to, he's yeah. responsible for the, the majority of the stage show. But there's also Brian Eno parts in it. There's the Ez Devlin artwork stuff towards the end that is absolutely stunning. You could talk about that for an hour and a half, the stuff that she does. You've all them, you've Brian Eno, you've Steve Lillywhite, you've the band, you've the huge tech crew, the lighting people. You've all these different huge talents going together. And what Bono was talking about, he said, it's not just about creativity, there's an awful lot of diplomacy involved up here (laughs) as well, and politics. And to get all those moving parts going in the same direction, that in itself, I thought, Uh, who's the the director of all that? I, I, I think the answer is Bono. I, I think that's coming from his vision. And who who can possibly do do it now after them? You know, because it sounds like the bar is through the roof. The bar the is very high. Yeah, I think. Yeah. 
think you're talking like people like Lady Gaga or, right. you know, huge stars at that level, uh, Beyonce maybe. Coldplay, I'd say Coldplay could do it. You need to be that kind of band though that everybody knows. Like in the lift, I was talking to people, they were from all over the world and every one of them has a U2 shirt and has the albums and tells you stories about seeing them and how long they've been yeah, seeing them yeah, for. Yeah, yeah. There's only so many bands at that level on this planet. Did you sing along to Desire? Yeah. I believe you can sing along now if you like. Is that The Edge singing on that version of it? I think it is. I think it is. The Edge is a beautiful voice. <laughs> you just end up in the wrong band because somebody had a better voice. Uh, that must be it. Uh, yeah, there was, there's a moment in it where, where the, it, it goes to dawn. The whole venue goes, like the sun is just coming up and it's just daylight and the sun and it's and you feel like you've been up all night and <laughs> you're worn out you're it, you know you've just been through the ringer yeah. in so yeah. many different ways and dawn starts to break and you feel almost relief and you know it's coming to an end and there was another tech guy I met in, in outside he said did you notice Bono's shadow on the water and I said oh what are you talking about and he said at one point it looks like they're walking on water and he said but his shadow was matching what he was doing so his shadow had to be reproduced yes. and put into wow yes and he said that that in itself would take huge amount of computing power so it's like that it's just whatever is possible is happening all that what it really boils down to though is just seeing really great musicians performing at the height of their powers ah well there's a lot more to it than that a lot more to it than that listen go off to bed Um, I'm I'm jealous now I wasn't you know I was going ah yeah I could take it or leave it but after reading everything and listening to you I'm I'm sort of envious or jealous, whatever word I, is, is they're, the they're word. They're doing gigs till uh, there's 25 shows. It's yes. running to December. Yeah, there may be more in the new year, but I tell you, if there was a way of getting over there, I would take it with both hands. We'll try our best. That was musician Tom Dunn on the Ray Darcy show today. And that's all we have time for on this edition of Playback Daily. But remember, if you'd like to listen back to any of your favourite programmes on Radio 1, you can do that on rte.ie slash radio or on the RTE Radio app. But for now, from me, Louise Herity, thanks for listening and take care.